Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. So, good morning. Good morning. I'm really excited about today for multiple reasons. The first one is my husband's not with us, so that means that I'm going to get to ask more questions than normal. Um, But the second thing is, you know, as a parent of a child who has a substance use disorder, the opportunity to talk with other parents is just really powerful. So I'm so grateful that you both could be with us this morning. Thank you for asking. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Yeah. So maybe you could just introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Tom. um, And our son, Jack, is uh, the person we'll be talking about today. All right. And I'm Sheila. Jack's mom. I was thinking this morning about my first contact with your family, and I think it was you, Tom, who had reached out to me when I was working at the University of Connecticut. Yeah. And your son had been, um, was in sober living situation. Correct. And he had been accepted into the Stanford uh, regional campus, but there were no recovery support services directly on campus there. Yeah. And thus began an adventure together of advocating for Jack to be able to have a spot in stores where there was a collegiate recovery program in place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I could expand on that. I think Sheila and I realized that he needed a transition plan from where he was and to be in a, a spot where he felt safe and things, you know, he had support um, that he was getting and to continue that and also start his college career. So both of us went to UConn and we, uh, it was one of the top schools that Jack was looking at. And as we read on the website, um, how you had built the program over years mm-hmm. and, you know, we reached out to you. We knew that that would be a good option for him. Yeah. So the program just celebrated 10 years of existence and I had a chance to be there for the last four and a half. Um, one of the things that I really admired when you started reaching out was your persistence. And it's a bittersweet thing, I think, as a parent when you're caught in this place of having to advocate for your child's disease, particularly a disease that has so much stigma around it. Um, And I'm just curious, what was going through your mind? Because there were times I would have an email, a voicemail, and a text from you all in the same five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jack, um, when he he started out early, he did great in school and went to a, a great high school. Um, and I think during COVID is when we started to realize there was a problem and he was just starting to think about college back then. Um, and I think as we were looking at different options and he was in recovery, we knew that we had, if, if he was going to go to college, it had to be a spot that had a support network. It would be too hard to go to, um, a campus that didn't have it just with all the, the potential, uh, risks that there would be and parties and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we were pushing hard to make sure, and both of us went to UConn and thought it would be a great spot for him. I think, and there was a sense of urgency. He was getting out of sober living, and, you know, um, we were thinking about his future, so there was a sense of urgency of, you know, what can we do to get him in? And, you know, the wonderful thing is you were so responsive and, and, mm-hmm. and supportive, so that was fantastic. But we also didn't know that these programs existed. 
And so that was really, um, it was wonderful when we discovered that, right? Because we really, we really didn't know we were trying to navigate this and, and how could we support Jack and help support a future for him. But at the same time, we didn't know how to do that. And, and it was great when, when Tom really had discovered that this program existed. And then we learned other universities did as well. But, um, but that was great. And there was a sense of urgency. So I think when Tom called you, emailed you, texted you, it was like, we really need to move to get Jack into here. Yeah. And I think that, honestly, for now, that type of advocacy is still needed, that the people that come alongside folks with substance use disorders still have to fight hard. But I've seen great changes over the last few years. So hopefully, you know, parents um, won't have to go through what you had to go through and that waiting game in between because there were, you know, you're caught up in the big machine of a big public university and one thing hinges on another thing, which hinges on another thing. And it was really important, I think, that we had made inroads with the admissions office so that they knew what it meant to be a recovery ally. Um, and we had made inroads with Residence Life so they knew what it meant to be a recovery ally. So it was still a bit of a struggle, but it was easier than it would have been even five years before. But I'm going to take you back a little bit. Um, and what? Um, tell me a little bit about your family. I think Jack has a sibling. He does. He does. So he has a younger sister. She's 16 and a junior in high school. So it's the two of them. And when did you first start to think that Jack might be misusing substances? It was during the pandemic. I think um, prior to that, it might have been just a couple of incidences where, you know, he um, had been caught with buddies from high school. And I think initially we just kind of thought that that was quote-unquote typical high school behavior. Um, But then it was during the pandemic when we were all stuck in our homes and um, you walked into the bedroom, right? And Jack's bedroom to say goodnight because the light was on and Jack had a beer in his hand. Yeah, it was it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and it was late. I think I had fallen asleep on the couch and then woke up, and um, definitely a school night and work night, so I went back up and was just checking on the kids' bedrooms, and his light was on. It was at least midnight, and I, you know, it sounded like he was either listening to music or something, so I knocked on the door, and he, did, he had some headphones on. He was playing, like, Xbox. So as soon as I walked in, you know, he had a beer, and I walked over to Ditton, looked like, and he looked surprised. And when I came over uh, and I started to talk to him a little bit, I looked down and there were some more empty bottles. And so I, that sort of alerted me that something was going on. Yeah. Um, so we talked about it the next morning. Jill uh, and I talked about it and then we went to go see Jack and started to figure out what was going on. So what was that conversation like? Because, I mean, honestly, I've met plenty of families who might not think anything of their high school student drinking at home. I don't know if we really thought anything yet, right? I mean, I think, we, again, we thought maybe it was high school behavior or more. But um, I think when we opened up the drawer of his nightstand and there were a lot of empties in there. So that's where he had been hiding them. But I think that next morning, to, it was, you know, what's going on? What was going through your mind? So it really wasn't a Jack's got a problem. It was, okay, he's drinking. He, probably stole those out of the refrigerator um, that we had. And um, maybe it was typical high school behavior. And he was um, stuck in the house for the pandemic. 
But quickly after that, because Jack escalated pretty quickly. So uh, it was, um, it moved fast from, is this kind of or... experimenting because he's in high school and he's, you know, was drinking with his friends before and now it's the pandemic. So they're drinking over playing Xbox versus he's really got an issue. And it did ramp up pretty quickly that we yeah. realized not long after that, that there was an issue. Yeah. And so what did that look like? Um, yeah, I think he had different groups of friends and he had one group of friends that was maybe 30 minutes away that was probably not the best influence on him. So I think with him realizing that maybe he had a problem and this group of friends that was influencing him and he was going to see them, um, you know, he ended up at a party one day and di didn't tell us he was going and we had to go, we had to go basically pick him up. Yeah. And so that, that was another sign that something was going on that was a little different. So I don't know about you, but when I started finding out that my son was using drugs, um, he's smoking cannabis, I had already been in recovery for almost 30 years, and I was trained in recovery coaching, but every fiber of my being wanted to do the traditional things of taking the keys of the car away, mm. grounding him, um, I, I didn't think about taking the cell phone away because we had the tracker on, so at least I knew where he was when he had the cell phone. But I knew that none of those things had really worked for many young people. It didn't work for me. And so I wonder, like, what was rolling around in your head on how to address it? Yeah, I think I, I think we did the same thing, you know, just whatever limitations um, we could put we did try to take the the cell phone away, like at least like at nighttime on yeah. the the iPad, um, I, you know, just making sure we knew, hey, you need to come home after school, or you, you know, we need to know where where you are. Um, yeah. We did have the tracker, but he would turn it off. Mm -hmm. So um, he would he would turn it off, so then we didn't know where then we didn't know where he was. Yeah, and you know the party that Tom was referencing, he certainly had it off, and we were calling everybody to try to figure out we had it an idea of where he was, who he was with. Um, we even enlisted that mom to try to help us, but unfortunately she wasn't very supportive of trying to help us. Yeah. Um, so it was, um, but we did try to put limitations on him, but he got around those. He knew how to get around those. Um, and so even though we thought we were a step ahead, you know, he figured out a way to, to get ahead of us. You know, now that I understand the complexity of the disease, and I think you guys, you know, for sure have invested a lot of time understanding it, I look at actions like that as the disease fighting for survival. Like the disease in you will fight for survival no matter how. And it looks at the time that this is this moral failure, right? They're lying, they're cheating, they're stealing. Mm -hmm. But to me, I see it all, all those behaviors as the disease just wanting to win. And Jack has said to us, and he said to me a number of times that um, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to stop, first of all, at that at that point. So to, to put a fine point on what you just said, certainly he didn't want to stop. But then the other piece was he was scared because he didn't know how to stop. So even though we were saying, you know, we're here to support you, we, we're going to help you get the resources, we're going to... Um, not only did he not want to stop, but he has stated that he was scared, like he didn't know 
how to, like what to do, even though we were saying we were going to help him. And, you know, I, I play over this situation in our mind. We were upstairs and it ended up being shouting. You know, we were trying not to, but it ended up being shouting and we were trying to take his iPad away. Mm-hmm. And he was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And he was like, I, you know, I just got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And it was finally like, you know, it was almost going to come to blows. I mean, I was trying to insert myself between Tom and Jack. And then at times you were trying to insert yourself between yeah, me. Um, yeah. Not that we were going to do something, but that we were just really angry, both, all, both sides. Mm-hmm. And he just laughed. And it was like, we had the iPad. It's like, now what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and that was that was pretty terrifying because yeah. we didn't know where he was going. Mm-hmm. And he was scared because you could tell he was scared. I'd see it in his eyes that he was scared. But it got very contentious. And then he just left and was like, we need to just take a deep breath and step back for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was trying to figure out what was going on with himself, too. There was a few months that Sheila was talking about and... It was like fight or flight, so he's like, just I gotta, I'm gonna run away. Just I, I'm, there's a problem, and I, so you know, we had a couple of those incidents, and then I think it got to the point where we said, you, you need help, and we, I think we were all chatting down in the kitchen one night, and he was starting to realize, yeah, I, I, I do, and we were starting to do some research in the background of like, mm-hmm. if we do have this type of problem where he's dealing with alcohol, um, and he needs professional help, what does that look like? So. We had found a place that um, would take them. We were starting to do the phone calls. and We started with the individual at first. That's true, uh, yeah. So we did have um, a psychologist at first that we started taking him to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would go, not very willingly, but he did go. But she said every time he walked in, he would have to um, give her a urine sample, and that set him off. Um, he did not like that at all. And so we did take him, but he would sit there, he'd get in the car, but then when he got there, he would have his arms crossed and not want to participate in the conversation at all. Yeah. And that was mm-hmm. um, hard because, mm-hmm. again, we're bringing him to somebody to help him. Mm-hmm. But the disease, you know, so he just sat there and that was, but she, you know, everybody led us to the next, you know, to the next phase. So she was the one, that, just to put yeah. that step in front, she was the one who helped us to find yeah. a place because it just continued to escalate. And again, it, it really ramped up very, very quickly. So from that time when you found all of the beer in his room during COVID, that was like March when the world just started to shut down. And really by November, December of that same year, yeah. We were calling the police. Yeah. So what prompted the call? Early, we had talked to him about, so he was seeing the psychologist, and it wasn't going very well. And then we had found um, him drinking a few more times. We, we had gone up to meet friends of ours for my best friend's 50th birthday. And uh, he was staying with a friend, and um, we had had a wonderful nanny when the kids were younger, and she was helping us out with our our younger daughter. And um, she called me and said, Jack is completely intoxicated, completely. So we left. We came back. He was completely intoxicated. Um, She had taken our daughter out, right, so so she wasn't around. but uh, Jack was really intoxicated. At that point, we were like, we, this, you know, Jack, we, we need something different. So the psychologist had helped us. 
with the facility. We told Jack he was going to go to the facility. Originally, he was okay with it. And then the day of, he was like, hell no. He was like, I'm not going. Mm -hmm. He locked himself in the master bedroom. Yeah. Got extremely intoxicated. We had to call the police. Um, we had some really nice police officers who came to try to coax him out of the room. But he was, that was probably one of the worst nights that I had seen him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me how you were feeling during that as a dad. There's a lot of emotions. Yeah, I mean, both she and I are really close with him. I mean, it's uh, it's your son, your best friend. It's 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 all that, and you uh, you want to you want to go take whatever that is and take it out of them and deal with it. And you can't because it's they're battling it. So you and you're trying to you're trying to support them, but you're also going through the, your own fears and 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 all that stuff that you know worried about him and how do we how do we help him and. Um, trying to be a parent and is, is it the tough love is it to give him a hug like what do you do and it was moving quickly and it's hard to navigate and we did we did have counselors and people were calling like how do we deal with this like yeah. call the police well what do you mean I'm going to call the police you know, call the police if, if he does this do that and so we were trying to follow the steps but it was it was really hard and for you as a mom you had to see the police coming because he really needed he he really needed help. Yeah, and so that was that was challenging. Like Tom said, you're, we're trying to do it um, as parents with help from counselors, but once the police got involved, it was very that was really hard. You know, we had several police officers in our house trying to coax him out of the bedroom, and he had to be taken to he was um, taken to the hospital because again, working with the psychologist, she was like this particular facility. Um, he needs to be hospitalized and needs to come from the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, if he's at this point, uh, he could have gone in willingly, but um, he didn't, got himself intoxicated. And so she's like, you got to send him to the hospital and then the hospital can bring him up. Um, and that was quite the night in the emergency room that night. And I stayed with him. And that was awful. Yeah. And you're, you have a background in health profession as well. I do. I do. So I was trying to understand what the team in the ER was facing because they had a very belligerent, mm -hmm. drunk kid. Yeah. And I've worked in that setting before. So I was I was understanding what the professionals were, were but then it was like, this is my kid. Mm -hmm. So that was really hard. That was a really, really rough night. Um, Jack and I did a repeat of that too, so we've had a couple of nights in the uh, in the hospital together. But that was, but the next morning, the ambulance came for him to go inpatient the first time, and the ambulance driver was really um, fantastic. Yeah. So he had a way with Jack to convince him to make get on stress in the world, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. People are informed and are looking at your child as. You know this willful uh, action, but that they see the disease and treat them like they would treat anybody else with an injury or illness. Yeah, they did. Those ambulance, um, the the EMTs really did. More and more first responders are being equipped, and more and more recovery coaches in Connecticut are spread throughout all the hospitals. Not at Stanford Hospital yet. I don't yeah. know where yours, which hospital you went to, but. Um, 
it does make a huge difference when you can get connected in the emergency room with somebody who's been there. Yeah, yeah. So I think the one bright light is the days before that he he had agreed with us that he would go up to this this facility, and then we had culminated into this because I think he was scared of whether he should go, what was it going to be like, and how long was it going to be there. That was a big question of like, well, how long am I going to be there? Like, I don't know. You start with thirty days, and then you figure out what it is. But the night that Sheila spent with him in the hospital, and then they took him up in the ambulance. We followed the ambulance up the next day, and you know, he sobered up. And as we got up there, we had brought all this stuff, and kind of gave him a hug. And he looked at us and said, "You know, I, I'm ready. I got to do this." Like it, they could finally hit him the next morning. That, and and he felt a connection with you know, either the person in the ambulance and the person that was receiving him was very worthy. You know. We weren't able to contact them, I think, for a few days. They were sending us emails, but um, I think one of the messages was, like, he assimilated in very quickly and started to embrace, like, this is going to help me. Like, this is this is a good place to be, and this is what I need to do. So I think that was that was our first bright light that things, you know, he was, he was starting to realize what was going on, and he had to focus on it. So was there a sense of relief for you guys while he was there because he was in a protected environment? For, for me, for sure. I think, yeah. Like, I, the moment that we handed him, it was awful. It was heart-wrenching. I think, it, you know, yeah. cried all the way home. But at the same time, it was, okay, he's safe. Yeah. He's safe. Because we couldn't, we couldn't keep him safe. You know, we couldn't, you know, I mean. You could just run away at any point. Right. Just pick up and go. So, as hard as it was, and especially not being able to talk to him initially, mm-hmm. um, but there was absolute relief that he was safe. I think that is what has, you know, really impacted me the most working with young adult families over the last four years is parents want so much to not be living in the terror that their child isn't going to survive this, either surviving it emotionally or physically um, or being able to have this future that you dream of when your baby's born, right, that that all of this is going to shift. And... Even at a young age, they found a way to get access to substances and they have all those skills to put towards their recovery, but ultimately it's totally out of your power as parents. Yeah. It's all in in the person with the disease, no matter whether they're 11 or 21 or 71. Yeah. And that was hard. Yeah. That was really hard. Yeah. And it was COVID, so we couldn't even see him. Their, their policy would have been we could go, I think, every weekend or every other weekend. And for, I, I don't know, it was almost 58 days where he went up staying there. We couldn't see him, so it was just writing letters. Uh, I think at some point we were able to do phone calls. It was after a few weeks. So there was a period of time where we were sort of disconnected, Yeah, uh, which was hard. It was 16? 17. When this is happening? So, no, so he was... 16. Trinity. He was 16. Yeah. Yep. So that's a long time to be separated yeah. from your child, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it started when he was a sophomore. So that the pandemic had hit when we were all in lockdown. Mm-hmm. He was a sophomore. That's when we found him. And then when we finally sent him off, it was his junior year. So yeah, 16. So then he comes home. Transitions can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah, he did a after-school program to bridge him, and it was for, I don't know, a couple months, a few months. That certainly helped, and uh, did some more counseling, so he, he got himself on track and was sober for 
along a good amount of time. Was your relationship different? I, it, it, yes and no. I mean, it was. It went back to how it had been mm-hmm. prior to um, him drinking. So it was. He was much more engaged. He was happier. Um, so from that perspective, you know, yeah, yes, but it, but there was still, um, there's still something, you know, and 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 part of it too was um, he hadn't embraced going, you know, to be part of um, AA, or he hadn't embraced all of the what was being offered. So he did go inpatient to um, an intensive program where he had to spend. A couple of days, a couple of hours um, every day in this program, but we were able to do it through school. So, because again, it was still, there was still COVID restrictions. Right. So, he was able to use the iPad and go to the guidance counselor at his high school to be participative. But then he had to go to the after school program. So, he felt that that was enough for him. And I think, you know, we were hoping maybe he would be more participative. But at that point, we got another social worker involved. psychologist involved yeah. and then um Bill. a recovery coach and yeah some more support yeah so we th- we thought we were doing the right things and he was engaged and he was um but i think kind of once he went back to school and once he started connecting with those people again yeah um it just slowly started to chip away again i think that's the thing you know treatment provides a lot of education and it gets the process started but then if you're not using your tools and you're back in your circumstances, it's easy to to return to those behaviors because they're not been around for a long time. And then it was hard on our on our marriage. So then we took a hit on our marriage. And um, you know, unfortunately Jack and his sister saw that too. So there was and not not that this is the cause of that, but I mean this this was a stressor in it as well. So just, you know, it wasn't as if this caused it, but it just that was another facet, and Jack was trying to manage that as well, right? So he saw what was happening between the two of us at that time, too, and that was a challenge, mm-hmm. um, you know? And so I think being back with some of his friends, obviously the disease in and of itself still, you know, and, and him maybe not tapping into all of his resources, some of what was going on at home, and, you know, um, he started drinking again. Did you pick up on it right away? Yeah, I mean, once you go through that, you, you, you as a parent, you're always lucky. But you know, you were, senses. Yeah, yeah. We had, um, before he we went away, we had we had gotten rid of all the alcohol in the house, which any parent would do, and things like that. And so, not any parent. Let me just say, so good. And you. Um, just trying to and and give him a, a healthy spot to be. We were starting to go to the gym and do all those sorts of things, but then we started to notice like he would sleep in later he didn't you know he wanted to skip a workout or it wasn't really excited about school there were different things that were going on um so we could tell that maybe there was something in the background i think there was and there's lots of different events but this one that jumps out i think we got a call one day and said jack's not at school today i'm like all right well that's interesting it's now 2 30 in the afternoon and he didn't and he didn't show up at school at 8 30 so like why are you calling us it winds up that he went to school sat in the parking lot and somehow got some alcohol somewhere and drank and sat in the car and then called his counselor and said like you know I need help and we couldn't reach him at least that's at least the, that's what I remember there might be more to it and then we're like all right we definitely 
you know, he's he's gone back or something's going on. Yeah. But now what added another element is now he has his license. So yeah. he had gone away not having a driver's license. Came back, he was sober. This was part of the um, contract that we had made when he was away. And, and um, he was sober. He was doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so we he got his, his license. So now he's sitting in the car drinking all day. So that was a whole nother layer. Right. Yeah. Risk goes up. Yes. I, he, I think he was going to the point where he's starting to run away again. And we we had there was lots going on at at at, at the house that Joe was talking about. There's stuff going on at school, just a lot of different things were happening in the fall, and he he ran away one day with the car, started drinking, and got himself in an accident, um, in New Jersey. I was traveling, Sheila was around, and there was bad enough accident where the airbag went off, uh, and he was arrested. So, um. She had to go get him, and then the car was totaled. So that was uh, that was pretty traumatic for all of us because we didn't know, and there was a period of time where we didn't know where he was. You know, I don't even—he might have turned off his tracking, right? Yeah, he had. He had turned off his tracking, and um, but he did. He crashed the car into the Jersey barrier, and thankfully he was okay. And thankfully, um, you know, nobody else got significantly hurt nothing you know but but he and he ended up in the hospital again and that was the second night that Jack and I spent in the emergency room um together and then um but he was he was in really bad shape that night really really bad shape that night and then it then so that accident happened and um we started looking at places again, like, okay, maybe he needs to go away and, or what other programs can we do? So we were working with his counselor. We were working with mm. the coach, um, his psychiatrist. So he had a psychiatrist as well. We had him on some meds and we were really just digging into where else could we send him, um, to starting looking at if that was even something that was needed. And, um, he took the car on Christmas. So we had family there. It was Christmas. Um, and I know it was a hard day because Tom wasn't spending Christmas with us. So again, when we were going through what we were going through, um, so that was challenging for, for Jack. And so that was definitely a trigger because for the first time ever, you know, we were spending a holiday. We weren't spending Christmas together. We had spent Thanksgiving together, but we hadn't spent Christmas together. So he was, he was hurting and, um, he had apparently been drinking all morning, but, um, we didn't know. That was the thing. Like he had been drinking, and we yeah. couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah, it was strange. I was with him, and he must have eaten. Maybe he was chewing gum or something, and just you know didn't really pick it up. Yeah, you know because I was leaving at whatever time, like eleven or something like that. So we had a few hours in the morning, and opened up some gifts and had Christmas breakfast, and then we were hanging out in his room a little bit, and then he's like, I was like, I gotta go, and gave him a hug, but I didn't. Honestly, didn't smell anything, and didn't really see it in his eyes. I don't know what the progression was, but. Um, was shocked. Um, I think Sheila called me maybe two hours later, and he had he had left the house. Um, so I immediately came home, and then at that point we were trying to figure out where he was with his his phone. He take taken his phone and his wallet, and um, drove south. And long story short, he ended up in Maryland, like four and a half hours away on Christmas Day, and 
about halfway into that show they were like well what do we do like we you know called the police to start tracking him and they were going from state to state and i'm like we know he's going south yeah and like i just i just gotta go i gotta go find him i just headed in the car i didn't know where i was going i just knew i was going south and i was Sheila would be calling me like i just went over the george george rush and the bridge i'm like two hours behind or he's going over the delaware memorial bridge i'm like i'm two hours behind and it's just christmas day i mean really really d- difficult stuff and then thank god he pulled over into a parking lot and sitting in the car um i think he probably realized like it's you know the last one i got into a, a bad accident i got it yeah whatever was going through his mind he was processing and then i think a cop came over and checked on him and smelled alcohol and said you know you've been drinking and got arrested again um so sheila called me and gave me this coordinates and i went to meet with the police officers and picked him up on christmas day and got him home but yeah it was another difficult one so jack um i know a little bit about the story so jack went to another inpatient treatment he do and and then really came from there to yukon he did so he did the inpatient this one was different than the first one because the first one there wasn't just a finite time. It was honestly, a lot of it was based on insurance and, yeah. and, and right. recovery, right? So that was the first one. The second one was a different facility because the first facility didn't have room. Mm-hmm. So we went with a different one, which was 30 days. He was not happy at the second one. You know, he seemed to embrace the first one. This other one, it was just, it was structured differently. And he was not happy. Um, but what they did was instead of leaving him there for the 30 days, the team that was working with them recognized that this perhaps wasn't working so well. So they transitioned him to a sober house. Um, so they brought him over. They introduced him to some of the folks. And there was this really great person, Juice, who was running the facility. Jack seemed to connect with him. Mm-hmm. And um, so Jack transitioned from inpatient to the sober living. And he always has a way of, you know, he he ends up kind of taking on a leadership role, leadership responsibilities. You know, he's got that quality. Um, And so kind of early on, Juice recognized it and so kind of had Jack involved a little bit more. And, you know, Jack was obviously nervous at first, but seemed to really settle in to the sober living. Yeah. Yeah. So he was there for... All the way through May. So at least several months, three, four months. And then the summer at home, and Jack started connecting once we knew he was coming to Yukon stores. I had a chance to connect with Jack in the summer, and then was there the day that you guys moved him onto campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that happened quickly. So as we started at the beginning, stated at the beginning of this, you know, when Tom reached out to you, and that, that was that, that urgency. He's coming home. Yeah. wants a plan. Because his high school was really great. They they really worked with us to make sure that he stayed on track. So when he was inpatient, getting his schoolwork done, um, so he was able to graduate on time. Yeah. You know, and that was great. So the high school was really great. They were very supportive. And then everything with UConn. Yeah. Um, there was that sense of urgency. What is he going to do? Because he's not going to, you know, just sit at home. You know, what what what's going to be the next step? Right. Um, and he wasn't sure. He was like, I don't know if I want to go to college. I don't know at this point. And some of that, again, is fear and the unknown. And um, But yeah, that was a quick transition. But I think once you started to feel comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I just want to compliment you on, there was a little bit of a, a 
there was a challenge with a roommate early on when Jack came on a campus and a Jack wanted you to be a part of the conversation because the parents were agreeable and the student was agreeable to all meeting together and I hadn't run across this situation as yet, so this was a brand new situation for me, but that Jack really wanted you a part of that conversation and the support that was shown by you for the other family who was going through very similar timeframes and challenges and their support back for you while you're both advocating for your children at the same time. So like to watch these families support yet advocate for their own child and make sure that they're doing everything they can to support the individual recovery. I don't know. It was just really a miracle for me to watch this happening um, because so much goes into that, so much of your experience and your heart and walking through it and trying to understand. And not everybody does it. So, you know, Jack is super lucky to have both of you and even though I'm not at UConn anymore, UConn is super lucky to have Jack at UConn. He did shine as a leader from the very beginning um, and all the way through my experience with him. And so, you know, I'd love to just, if you could just maybe summarize, like when we think about, you know, young youth to young adults in this transition to college and having to navigate all this, you know, is there anything that you learned that's particularly meaningful that you wish you'd known at the beginning? I can, I can jump in for a second. Just, I think it, you kind of created that, that balance between a safe place where it was the URC house at, at, and also have the rest of the world right there, like okay. steps away. So knowing that, you know, you can't be in sober living forever, you're going to have to kind of go out into the real world. So I think it was a really good balance that we weren't sure exactly how it was going to be set up. We knew the dorm, you know, potentially the floor was going to be sober living and there was going to be this place he could go to. But then you have to walk from A to B and the rest of the world is there. And so I think that that we thought through, but Jack really sort of in, embraced it and said, look, I gotta, I'm ready. I'm ready to deal with this. I'm, I'm going to let my friends know that I'm working through this. And, and, and if I need to just go to URC and close the door and be with some other friends, I can. And if I want to go to a hockey game with everybody else, I can. So yeah. I think having that balance was good, which we weren't sure exactly how it was going to work. And just, just a comment on that, I, I would always tell parents, this isn't a safe place. Being, hmm. you know, at a large public university, state university, it's not a safe place for people in recovery. But there are services that if you take advantage of them, it can be a safer option. And I think that that is huge and learning that. You know, and so knowing that UConn had this program and there's resources and there's resources on other college campuses. But I think, um, you know, you as a resource and, and the URC was paramount to this transition because I felt safe. And I know, you know, you felt safe and Jack had stayed. He felt safe because we it, it is scary. You know, like yeah. I said, it's not a safe space to go up there. But we saw we, we saw that there was, um, uh, you know, safe areas for him. And we had to trust that he was going to um, flourish. And we had to trust that because we couldn't continue to try to protect him. We couldn't shelter him. He had to navigate and figure some of this out. And he was doing a really good job doing that um, this second go around. 
and coming out of recovery. I'm just really proud of them. It's a lot of hard work and just really proud of of um, the work that he's doing in recovery and then the work that he's doing in school. You know, school was Great. kind of an afterthought in high school because it was all about the disease. Yeah. And so school was an afterthought. So while he kept up with his work, um, you know, it was the disease first. Now he's thriving academically as well as with his sobriety, and that's amazing. Well, I, we're going to get a chance to hear from Jack in part two of our series with this family, and we'll get his perspective on all of this. But I do want to thank you for being willing to share your story in the hopes that even one other family can maybe find their path a little easier than your family has found yours. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, Recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.